He was a man of the people, a man who wanted one thing and one thing only, true independence for his country. But if Western governments had their way, he'd be shot dead before his 36th birthday. I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. In just a minute, we'll learn more about the government-sanctioned murder of Patrice Lumumba. And in today's episode, we'll also be speaking with Dr. George Zongola Tajala, a professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Before his tenure there, Dr. Zongola taught at Howard University, Clark Atlanta, and even spent seven years in the United Nations. He's authored many books and articles on socio-political conflicts across Africa, including his award-winning work, The Congo from Leopold to Kabila, A People's History. His decades of scholarship on Patrice Lumumba and the Congo makes Dr. Zongola the perfect person to illuminate the lethal impact of state violence, white interference, and economic injustice against black people everywhere. June 30th, 1960. The Congo. The ground shook with thunderous applause as the distinguished man took the stage. He had yet to utter a word, but his posture signaled that he intended to speak the truth. His work had earned him the love of his people, and even cost him his freedom on occasion. Yet, he had come full circle, elected by the people as their leader, and now in a position to fight even harder for their rights. He stood calmly for a moment, the sun shining directly on his face. This was a historic moment. Finally, hard-won independence had come. Though he was a native of the Congo, he'd grown up under Belgium's colonial rule. As he fought for social justice, he realized Belgium cared nothing for his country. They were attracted by the Congo's riches, Their actions, guided by the desire to preserve white rule against the wishes of the Congolese people. The man surveyed the crowd once more. He smiled broadly, beautifully, and softening his face, he began. Victorious independence fighters, I salute you in the name of the Congolese government. Those words, signifying the Congo was now its own independent country, were only made more powerful as he assured his people the racism and dehumanization that marked Belgian rule were now over. But his Western enemies were listening, and their disapproval and hatred of him compounded with each word he spoke about independence. Mere months after his imminent speech, his life would be stolen. The man, Patrice Lumumba. His murderers, Belgium, the United Nations, and the United States of America. White interference and control have been behind the murders of too many of our fallen freedom fighters. But through understanding Lumumba's story, we can begin to take back control and achieve the vision of sovereignty they tried to destroy. Dr. Zangola, what does black liberation look like to you? 
as Martin Luther King Jr. used to say, uh, is about equality, is about fairness, it's about justice, is about the question of opportunity for every child growing up in this country and around the world to be able to dream to the fullest of uh, their abilities and to be able to grow up and become responsible human beings in their communities. So how did you get into working or doing scholarship on Patrice Lumumba? Well, I'm from the Congo. (laughs) I grew up in the Congo when uh, uh, he started fighting for independence. When he was elected interim president of the National Congolese Movement, the most important political party in the country, which was a nationwide uh, organization that was multi-ethnic, multi-regional, and so on. Uh, I was a teenager in my uh, first year of uh, high school in the Congo. I was attending a Presbyterian Methodist secondary school, boarding school, and Lumumba started uh, his fight for independence, and he was extremely popular. He was one of the most eloquent, the most sophisticated, and and the one who ordinary people could see him as uh, one person who could really lead our country to independence. Coming to power as the first democratically elected prime minister of what used to be the Belgian Congo, the fact that he only lasted two months and a half in the government, uh, he was uh, became prime minister on June 30th, 1960, was illegally removed from power by the ceremonial president, Mr. Kasavubu, on um, September 5th, 1960, then arrested December 1, 1960, and assassinated on January 17, 1961. So I lived through all of those events, uh, and they were really a a trauma for most people in the Congo, uh, that uh, the uh, powers that be, uh, led by Dwight D. Eisenhower, President of the United States, and the King of the Belgium, uh, Baudouin I, uh, were the people who, who gave orders for Lumumba to be assassinated. And the CIA and the Belgian intelligence worked hand in hand to do everything possible, of course, with the collaboration with uh, Congolese traitors. So I lived through all of those uh, events and they left uh, a mark. And uh, as a uh, when I went to school at Davidson College, I, I was editor of the newsletter of Congolese students in America and Canada, the United States and Canada. And um, I was uh, a Lumumbist. I was one of the people who were followers of Patrice Lumumba. And so I have continued that passion and I've uh, written a lot about Lumumba and uh, co- continue also to work within the political party that he created and was still a very important member of his organization. So I want to take it back a bit to your personal experience. What did it feel like living under Belgium colonial rule when you were growing up in the Congo? It was hell uh, in the sense that we always lived with fear because you were under constant control. You cannot move from one province to another province without an internal passport. I'm the ninth of nine children in my family. So my mother would travel to visit these siblings and she would always have me around <laughs> because I was the youngest. And, and I remember, you know, going to Katanga province, for example, this is the mining province and where you, 
you go there, uh, you arrive, then you have, the next day you have to go to the head of the black township, which is a white man, to declare yourself and be told that you have three weeks. You can, we can go beyond three weeks. You have to get out and go back to where you come from and, and so on. And of course, traveling from, I grew up on a mission, a Presbyterian mission station, 10 kilometers from a major town, which has a major rail, uh, railroad uh, station and a government center. And every day at 6 a.m. and 12 noon, we're whipping prisoners. So you have prisoners being whipped by a whip. They're raising the Belgian flag and then whipping people. And it was most scary. And but of course, we know about uh, how at the latest provocation, the police and the military would intervene, arms drawn and shoot and kill people. So you're living in a situation of, what should I say, fear and anxiety. And, and it was not something that you wanted. In the presence of, of a white men, especially a, a government officer, you know that he's going to be surrounded by soldiers and police officers uh, who are armed, uh, which simply creates a, a lot of anxiety. So over here, we've always been taught to hate ourselves by the system of white supremacy. And we don't have a strong enough cultural connection to the continent to be able to really push back against that. Naturally, we have to do that in very intentional ways. What was it like for you all growing up in the Congo under the system of white supremacy? Well, the point you make is is an excellent point, is that our culture was really the uh, means we, we had to shield ourselves from this oppression, that we could rely on our culture, uh, especially its emphasis on uh, solidarity, brotherhood, being together, and the sharing of, of happiness, but also sharing of sorrow uh, and, and all of that. So our culture provided, um, uh, I think, a great deal of support to us. And, and it was one way of uh, being able to to shield us from uh, this oppression we're facing on a regular basis. You know, you have, you have people working in a job and doing very, very hard labor, like in mines or construction or road maintenance and have a European calling you a macaque, meaning a monkey. Uh, I mean, you can't stand that. I mean, it's simply uh, some people would, would lose their, their cool and, and attack that guy. Uh, and of course, you know that your your uh, fate can be, uh, if not prison, it could even mean death. So independence, we really rejoice. So what was it like for you as a youth coming up, seeing Patrice Lumumba in action, like you, your friends, your family? Describe what that felt like seeing him. Well, I, I never saw him in person, really. Uh, we heard him on, on the radio. Uh, we saw him on television when we could have access to television. And all of the best newspapers published by Congolese political parties in Kinshasa, the capital city. And we read all of this. So we were very politically educated. I could tell you, I, I was uh, very um, conscious of what's happening in the country and found that Lumumba was the best person we needed for our country. And so my family also was very supportive. Uh, and the uh, majority of people in the Congo were very supportive of Lumumba. When you say he was the best person that the Congo needed, what were the conditions like that 
made you feel, made you and those around you feel that he was the best person suited to to lead Congo to the future? Well, one, see, we had in in the Congo, as in many other African countries, social class divisions among among blacks, among Africans. Well, just like in this country, you had what was known as the so-called responsible Negro leaders, <laughs> and who tended mostly to be to be moderate people who were whom the who got along very well with the powers that be in the country and so on. So we had in our in our uh, colonies in Africa a class of Africans who are mostly educated, uh, many of them at secondary school level. Some had managed to get a university training or university level training. But these are the people who were working as clerks in the administrations, people who were uh, medical assistants and nurses, school teachers, clerks in the government and in the private sector and so on. And these people were known as um, uh, évolués in the French language, evolved people who have gotten education, people who could uh, pretend to be like the Europeans, like the whites. Lumumba was one of those. Uh, he was self-educated. He never, he never even finished elementary school, but he was self-educated uh, through correspondence and evening classes from a Catholic priests. Then he went to school for training of uh, postal clerks, which was a one-year school uh, in Kinshasa, the capital city. And uh, he was so smart that he, he had to pass an exam because that school was reserved for people who have had secondary education. Since he didn't have any secondary education, uh, he was given an exam. He passed the exam and went to the school. And at the school, he graduated third in a class of over 30 students. He was third. Uh, so very, very smart. And he used to write lots of articles in the papers. His main uh, problem was uh, the whole question of racism. He was writing articles against racial discrimination uh, and so on. But at the same time, he had these uh, uh, European ideas that, that uh, he was among the elites and his job as an elite was to work with the Europeans to civilize the so-called ignorant, <laughs> majority ignorant masses, the people. That happened all the way to about 1956. 1956-57 was a year of reckoning for him. He was uh, uh, falsely accused of embezzling money in the postal service. Uh, he was in charge of uh, the department that took care of uh, money order. At that time, we didn't have much of a banking system in the country. So postal money workers, uh, money orders, were the means by which people would pay debts. To You, you go to a, uh, to a department store or to pharmacy, you buy things on credit, and then you would pay the pharmacy or department store through money orders. So all that money would pass for him. He was the only black in the Congo who was in charge of that department anywhere in the country. <laughs> and, and so he was working the job of a white man but, out, but paid always the, the salary of a black man. Uh, so we had this system in the uh, in Congo where Lumumba is uh, uh, one of the highest ranking blacks in the postal service, but his salary was 100 US dollars a month. <laughs> uh. and, and the Belgians were earning 10 or 15 times uh, his salary, you see. And he was expected to pay his home mortgage, 
to pay for uh, sending his schools to white schools because he was an evaluator. His children had to go to white schools. Uh, and, and he had to feed the family of uh, five people, uh, himself, his wife, and three children, uh, and, and uh, do many other things. And so, but it was too little, uh, and so on. And, and so Lumumba in jail started thinking and began to see this whole system for what it was. So by 1957, he started rejecting monopolizing ideas, these are condescending ideas from the Europeans. And he started to understand that what we have to fight for is not racial integration, what we have to fight for is independence, is having black people in control and being able to use the resources of our country to improve the living conditions of our people. This was his main commitment. And this is why the Europeans did not like him. Can you give some context around what independence was looking like for other African countries involved in the struggle around the time that Lumumba was um, coming to his awakening? Almost all of West Africa was under French control, except for Nigeria, uh, which is a big, a big country, and small countries of Ghana and uh, Sierra Leone, uh, Gambia, uh, that were under British control, but the rest was, was under French control. And then we also had Central Africa, except for the huge Belgian Congo, the, the French Congo, Gabon, Ubangi now called the Central African Republic, and Chad were under French control. So they had a huge empire. So in 1958, Charles de Gaulle, when he took over as president of France after the military coup d'etat in France, he went to Africa and told Africans that anyone who wants independence can seize it. France is no problem. So then he organized a referendum to ask the African people in those countries to decide whether they wanted separation from France to become their own independent countries, or they want to remain part of what is known as the French Union, as a, a kind of a, a commonwealth of French countries, but controlled by France. So one country, Guinea-Conakry, voted no. They wanted independence. Do you know what the French did? They took everything from, from Guinea. They destroyed uh, documents. They destroyed offices. Uh, they took all the planes of uh, roads and bridges and buildings, uh, telephones, everything. Uh, and it was only thanks to Ghana, Kwame Nkrumah, who had become independent in 1957, went to the rescue of Guinea, gave Guinea money, to be able to make up for all the damage that the French had done. In Niger, uh, the country north of Nigeria, which is very, very rich in uranium, and France depends on uranium from, uh, from Niger for its nuclear weapons and for electricity. So in Guinea, in uh, uh, Niger, they voted no also. The French rigged the, the election said the result was yes. <laughs> uh, and and uh, so because they didn't want to uh, abandon that, uh, that access to uh, the uranium of, of Niger. Simply, it was not a real independence because the French continued to be in control. Everywhere you see the kind of person who sent his ambassador, the ambassador was really the pro-council, was like the, was like the, the colonial governor who, who continued 
to control everything the president. As a matter of fact, you'll see in most of these countries, the ambassador's residence was next to the presidential palace. <laughs> so, so you could see, but he didn't have to go long. He said to walk across the street or, or the next block, <laughs> he'd be talking to the president. Uh, so, so these are different from independence like of Ghana, because Nkrumah became, uh, Ghana became independent under Kwame Nkrumah in 57, it was really independent. So Ghana was truly an independent country that could make its own decisions and that could really try to, to use the resources of Ghana to improve the lives of Ghanaians. This is why they made the coup d'etat against him in 1966. Uh, so this was the main difference. So Lumumba came out as a, a leader in the mold of Nkwame Nkrumah of Ghana and Sekuture of Guinea. These are the leaders who were truly independent, leaders were committed to real decolonization, to real uh, self-determination and economic independence and the control of their national sovereignty and their resources to improve the lives of their people. Europeans and Americans didn't like that at all. And so Lumumba saw all this and was wanting the same for the Congo. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And you, so you growing up, were you all aware of what was going on around the continent? Very much so. Absolutely everything. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. If you could expound upon more of what Lumumba's vision for the Congo was and how that differed from Belgium's vision for the Congo. Well, Belgium's vision for the Congo was to continue, whether it was uh, colonial, uh, colonial territory or an independent territory, to serve the interests of Belgium. They wanted to, since they were so racist and con con condescending in their views, uh, Africans couldn't do anything. So they just said, well, let's just give them independence. They'll be happy to live in, uh, in uh, huge villas and uh, and ride the big American Cadillacs, and and uh, uh, but then we have Belgian advisors telling them what to do. This was their idea, but they will continue to control the economy of the country. Mm. And and uh, so while uh, Lumumba's uh, vision of the country was that of an, a truly independent country, an indep a country that was able to build its own economy but was also able to, con to contribute to development of the African continent as a whole. So we are a country located in the center of Africa. Uh, today, Congo is the second largest country geographically in Africa after Algeria. And it is um, also one of the richest countries on earth. Uh, you name it, we have resources in everything you can think of, whether it is in the minerals, whether it is in uh, fertile soils, whether it is in the forest, we have the second largest equatorial forest in the world after the Amazon. We have uh, plenty of water. Our hydroelectricity is probably the highest in the world. We can, we can uh, provide electricity to most of Africa. Uh, and today we have, uh, I've mentioned uranium, uh, but also copper and cobalt. And of course, cobalt today is essential for electrical cars and uh, many other things. Uh, coltan, which is uh, uh, a major ingredient for cell phones and uh, you name it, you have all of those things. So 
Le Monde wanted to use that also to promote pan-Africanism, because for him, the independence of the Congo meant not only independence of people of the Congo, but independence and freedom for all the people of Africa and all the people of African descent all over the world. So this was the vision of Lumumba. And he had intentions of once he gained liberation for the Congo for helping neighboring nations as well. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. The beginning of Angola next door to us, which was controlled by the Portuguese, who were a very poor country, but depended primarily on colonialism and had no intention of leaving Africa. As you know, uh, people in Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau had to resort to armed struggle to kick the Portuguese out. Mm. Uh, and of course, then the Portuguese were supported by United States through NATO, the NATO alliance. They continued to give uh, uh, Portugal uh, weapons, including uh, Nepal bombs, uh, to, to kill people in Africa, simply because these people wanted to be independent. And so what was Lumumba's stance on using violence as a tool of liberation? Lumumba was basically nonviolent. He really admired Martin Luther King Jr. uh, and um, uh, was uh, a uh, disciple of nonviolent. But of course, he says that in case that uh, you have to defend yourself, you can use violence in case you are uh, are aggressed. But But he himself as a political leader, do not want to use violence uh, as, the, as, the first, as the first response to anything. He wanted to move through nonviolent means and negotiation and so on, but only if those failed, then one can resort to violence. At a certain point, did it almost come to that? Yes. What happened was that we got independence on uh, June 30th, 1960. Five years later, July 5, there was a mutiny of the armed forces. As you know, in our armed forces, there was not a single Congolese officer in armed forces. Mm. Uh, We had um, uh, non-commissioned officers like sergeants and I think the highest rank was sergeant major, (laughs) was highest rank for the Congolese. So from from, uh, second lieutenant on to general, they were all whites, all, you know, all Belgian. And so the Belgians ex- exploited that. The commander of the armed forces, a Belgian general by name of Janssens, went to the main military camp in Kinshasa, called up a general meeting of all the soldiers, went before the blackboard and wrote, before independence equals after independence. Mm. He says, he said, uh, warrant officers, sergeant majors, sergeants, corporals, men, independence is for civilians. For you guys, nothing changes. Wow. <laughs> You're going to have a Belgian officers, discipline will be maintained, and that is all, dismissed. <laughs> and what happened? He, exactly what he had wanted. They all went on mutiny, and the military in the Congo had an excellent communication system. They went on their, their communication system and informed garrisons all over the Congo. So they all went and, and arrested and um, uh, jailed all their officers, <laughs> took away all the guns and pistols 
and and took and and named their own officers. And they can say, "You are you. You become a colonel. You majors." Mm. <laughs> so so Lumumba had to give in. So the they went to the American embassy. The ambassador uh, Timberlake was the first U.S. ambassador to the Congo. He and Kasabubu, the president, told him that we want the Americans to intervene. There was now an uh, exodus of all the Belgians. We had 100,000 Belgians in the Congo who were in charge of practically everything, all the services uh, in government, uh, the doctors, the, the uh, engineers, the uh, officers of the army, and so on. So the, this left a huge hole, uh, and the Belgians not only occupied different parts of the Congo, they made it possible for the Katanga province, the richest province in the continent, to secede. But the Congolese were not in charge. This was a province completely run by Belgians. There were Belgian political uh, and administrative uh, people and the military officers who were in control of Katanga. It was naive, very naive, because very nicely the United States, as the head of NATO, could not intervene against another NATO member. Uh, so the American ambassador told them, no, 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 you better go to ask for the United Nations. Now, the United Nations Secretary General, a very smart Swedish scholar and a Swedish uh, diplomat, had already anticipated trouble in the Congo. And he sent our brother, Ralph Bank, who was his number two. He sent Ralph Bunch to the independence celebration, but gave him as a mission that you stay in the Congo for three or four weeks to see how the situation is going to, to, to develop. Because he also suspected that there's going to be trouble in the Congo. And Ralph Bunch stayed, and Bunch became the first uh, head of the UN uh, mission in the Congo. And the Soviet Union provided logistical support, uh, meaning sending trucks and airplanes uh, and, and technicians to operate those trucks and airplanes to help ferry Congolese troops to Katanga to fight the secession of Katanga. So you, you outlined how it was controlled by Belgiums, essentially, but they had a, a puppet installed as well, right? Can you speak to that? Yes, Moise Chombe, T-S-H-O-M-B-E, Chombe. And Chombe, all he had to do was simply sign documents, nothing else. He made no decision. He signed documents given to him by the Belgians. All his advisors were Belgians. Uh, his political advisor, his military advisor. So we had the Belgian diplomatic mission in Katanga, who was uh, uh, basically the person who gave orders. He became the Minister for African Affairs in the Belgian government. And he's a guy who gave the order that Lumumba be transferred from, uh, from uh, Kinshasa to Lubumbashi, where he was assassinated. Mm. Katanga was simply a puppet state. What was the feeling like for you and the people around you while this was happening with Shambay? Uh, Chombe was uh, a very unpopular person. Ironically, he became very popular a few years later because the secession ended in January of 1963. And Chombe went into exile in Spain. In 1964, he came back to the Congo and became prime minister. <laughs> wow. uh, this was, again, a, a, another uh, trick uh, done by the United States and Belgium. 
Can you talk a little bit about that? Because the West always has their hands in the affairs of Africa. Speak to how that works. This is a very specific situation, but it happens all around the continent, right? Yeah, well, all over. This is why it is so important. But we have African-Americans in diplomacy. We have uh, not only African-American, but African-Americans who care about Africa and who uh, who, who uh, sympathize with us uh, uh, because these are the people who would understand what we are fighting for and what we've been uh, struggling to do and who can help us by uh, guiding U.S. foreign policy in a correct way rather than the way it was uh, uh, under Kennedy, Johnson, and uh, many other presidents uh, where we had people who have been uh, hurting Africa by, instead of, of, of helping us. Uh, no, see, the United States has always had very great interest in the Congo, especially since uh, we can uh, we can go back to the Leopoldian years in the fight against uh, the the uh, oppression, the uh, atrocities committed by King Leopold in the Congo in during the rubber period and so on. Later on, I think the U.S. interest in the Congo became much, much stronger in 1940s. Why? Because we provided the uranium that the United States used to make the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. Mm -hmm. And so this created a strategic interest for the United States in the center of Africa. And so the United States would not want to see anyone else other than Belgium or the Congolese that they can control running the Congo, you see. And this is why they were afraid that Lumumba would be difficult to control because he was an independent spirit. But the person who would, would have his own mind and his own way of, of looking at the interests of the Congo. And that's why they had every interest to get rid of him, you see. Uh, so the United States uh, is a superpower. Of course, today is the only superpower in the world. Uh, you see now they have uh, two drone bases in Niger, uh, they're using uh, drones against the uh, uh, Shabab in, in Somalia. Uh, they are uh, well-placed in uh, uh, many parts of Africa to intervene militarily and so on. And so they have a global interest, which makes it necessary for them to have a presence all over the world and to intervene when necessary in defense of American interests, in the promotion of American interests. So we were uh, victims of this. Uh, in the 1960s, because the United States uh, put itself on the side of Belgium against the interests of the people of the Congo. It's amazing to me how the propaganda out there always wants us to, us in America, to believe that there's nothing in Africa, nothing of any value. But they're all they're, their hands are all all over there. You know, I believe if enough of our people over here really we're invested in understanding what's really going on on the continent and what riches actually exist there that we could do a better job of supporting and becoming more invested and having a more pan-African outlook. Yeah, you know, but we had the W.B. Du Bois, uh, who was actually buried in, in Accra, Ghana, who was a great defender of African interests uh, at the same time that he was a major leader of the NAACP and fighting for uh, equality and justice in, in America. Uh, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King and Coretta went to the uh, independence of, of Ghana celebration in 1957. Uh, in there, uh, Malcolm X, uh, who in 64 
uh, traveled across Africa and came out uh, a different person in terms of his understanding of Islam and understanding that people are the same, that he was so impressed at Mecca to see people of all colors and from all over the world worshiping together and um, thought that, you know, there's a possibility of, of working across color lines and ethnic lines to, to change the world and so on. So uh, we like to see people like uh, Du Bois, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X uh, among the uh, leadership in this country. Uh, they will continue that spirit of seeing that the problems we face here are in many ways similar to problems we've been facing in Africa as well. I'm wondering if you could give any advice to folks that are listening who may be interested in learning more about what's going on on the continent. How do we decipher between what's authentic, relevant, factual information and what is propaganda that, you know, folks might want us to know to uh, control our, our thinking about it? Well, there are uh, sources of information which are very credible. Uh, we do have the African Union, which is a continental organization uh, of African states in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, uh, which has uh, an ambassador in, in Washington to represent Africa to the United States. We have a representation in New York at the United Nations. And um, uh, these uh, people do distribute information. Uh, they have uh, websites where you can go, one can go on the African Union website to get the information about what's happening in Africa. There are also good publications among uh, many of the African study centers in the United States the African uh, Studies Association of the United States, which is the largest organization of uh, African area specialists in the world, uh, both black and white, who publish uh, a lot. They have a newsletter. Uh, so if you, if you go on, uh, on Google, African Studies Association, you'll find them. Uh, many of these African study centers around the country, in, uh, in New York, in Washington, in Boston, in Atlanta, in North Carolina and Wisconsin, Illinois, Minnesota, uh, California, and so on. All of these uh, centers do have a newsletter or websites. One can get information or one can uh, get access to scholars studying a particular country for interest in knowing something about Liberia or the Congo or Zimbabwe or what have you. We have people who are there who are experts who follow day-to-day -day what's happening in those countries uh, and who can provide information. Is it fair to say that the mainstream news should not be trusted about Africa? You have probably three or four papers in America who do follow Africa on a regular basis, although, you know, you'll get uh, uh, maybe one or two articles a week. You may have a couple of correspondents covering the whole continent. Uh, the New York Times that lives to have somebody in West Africa and East Africa and Southern Africa and North Africa. They do travel a lot, but at least they keep up with what's happening in some of these countries. I think the academic world, especially the African study centers around the country, would be probably the best uh, sources of information. So what is it like today? Are there ways that Lumumba's vision has been realized? Is there still work to be done? If so, what kind of work? Uh, a lot has to be done, but I think that I'm so happy today because you know, I, was in, I was back home in September and uh, December of this uh, past year, 
And um, I see there is an emerging spirit of, of national unity, uh, of people really uh, ready to get rid of all these uh, holdovers of the Mobutu and the Kabila eras. Uh, and people are really now, the, the new president has called for the formation of a, of a national uh, unity uh, for what he calls uh, the um, idea of working together, the idea of uh, having a vision for the country that everyone wants to work for and get rid of all this uh, nonsense of uh, fighting over over ethnicity, that, you know, that ethnic group has, has more jobs, has more more attention on the government than another. Uh, people see that all of us are in the same boat, all of us face uh, the same uh, challenges, and that it's better that uh, we come together uh, in a sacred union in favor of, of national unity, of uh, working together, to build the country, to get out of poverty, and and to uh, build uh, the country with our resources. We have enormous resources. So it simply makes no sense for us to have the, one of the richest countries in the world in terms of natural resources, and which is at the same time one of the poorest. This uh, is because of how our history, how we were badly treated by the Belgians, and how the people who succeeded the Belgians were also so corrupt. Uh, and so unpatriotic in their work. So I think that thanks to Lumumba, and we're using him as our uh, guide, as our uh, model, uh, we can build a, a better Congo. That's great. I personally do think unity for all Africans and people of African descent worldwide is what's necessary for us to defeat or overcome the system of white supremacy over here. I see it. I see it clearly. Um, and I think that there is more of a push for Unity. So I'm glad to hear that that's taking place in the Congo as well. I know Kwame Nkrumah wrote Africa Must Unite and wrote about, I believe, a federation of African states. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm totally in agreement. I support uh, Nkrumah's vision of the United States of Africa. Uh, This is what the African Union is pretending to do right now, although I don't think they can succeed in, 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 in making it a reality because they are not serious in terms of building it. Uh, for example, today the African Union is uh, dependent on most of its programs from the European Union and China. Uh, we get about 80% of the money that goes into the projects of the African Union, such as in fighting uh, uh, the COVID pandemic and in terms of the African uh, Center for Disease Control, and even in buildings uh, like the the tall building, which is the headquarters of the United, of the African Union, was built by the Chinese, a tune of two hundred million dollars. Two hundred million dollars for a little country like Equatorial Guinea, which has less than a million people, which is uh, full of uh, uh, oil money. They, they get billions and billions of oil money every year. It's nothing. It's peanuts. Uh, And our major unit of the African Union is the Peace and Security Council because of all these wars, all these uh, um, uh, crises we have across the continent. And we have to ask the the, the Germans to build us a building for the Peace and Security Council. I mean, again, you know, that is simply totally against the vision of Nkrumah and Lumumba, uh, the vision of self-reliance. 
because we do have resources and we have the, the people. We have uh, so many qualified men and women uh, who can uh, organize and build our countries the way they should be built. And why do we have to go out and beg others to come and build as little things that we can build ourselves? So this is one of the major weaknesses of the continent. And the first thing we Africans have to do is analyze our own weaknesses and get rid of them. What can we take from his story to use to help us go towards the future? Well, mostly the whole emphasis on unity. Uh, unity as a people, uh, rather than uh, having to distinguish ourselves as, uh, as uh, Americans and Britons and Europeans and Africans and this and that, we as people of African uh, descent have to band together, uh, knowing our history, knowing how the world, uh, you know, uh, gave us a pretty bad deal through the transatlantic slave trade and uh, slavery and how uh, slavery basically weakened our societies in Africa, divided our people, uh, increased the wars between states, deprived our countries of the best uh, young men and women who could build a country throwing our economies into disarray. Uh, these are things that we have to, to keep in mind when we, we, we think about the necessity of making sure that whether you are in Jamaica or in Guyana or in uh, uh, Haiti or in the United States or Canada or Britain or, or any of the African countries, you got to keep that in mind, that we as a people have to stick together, uh, have to share our knowledge, have to share our experiences in different fields, uh, and help each other. And just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important, too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at BlackHistoryYear.com. Most folks do five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, Albany Jones, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Shonda Buchanan, Brianna Lambach, Courtney Morgan, Aquia Tay, Tasha Taylor, Leslie Taylor Grover, and Darren Wallace. Producing and editing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Ivana Tucker. Julian Walker is the executive producer of the podcast. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Thanks for checking us out.